Thank you so much, Tom Song, and wonderful instrumentalist. How I envy you. In heaven, I'm going to be able to play all of those instruments and not until. And so thank you for uh, playing for us so beautifully today. Uh, take your Bible, please, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, Dr. Day, just to show you that you inspire me sometimes, we are going to talk about what you sang about today. And while you're turning to 1 Corinthians 15, you are no doubt aware of the fact that the suicide rate in America is increasing exponentially. One of the sadnesses that I see on every hand is the way many of our young people are looking at life as they find no hope left. When the Apostle Paul wrote the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, he was aware of what he had already written. If you just read through the book of 1 Corinthians, it is as though he were writing to today's church as he addressed the church at Corinth. And he addressed all of the conceivable problems that they have and that we have. And there was a problem in Corinth concerning what happened on the other side of the grave. And he addresses that too, but he waited until last to speak to the doctrine of resurrection because the Apostle Paul realized how essential it was that they end with hope. Every other faith in the world cannot end with faith and confidence in the future. That is only a part of the Christian testimony. Let's read what he says and keep your Bible open as we'll be referring repeatedly to the 15th chapter. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you and which also you received and in which you stand by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preach to you unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he arose again on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve, and that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain with us even until today, though some have fallen asleep in death. And after he was seen by James and then by all of the apostles, last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you have believe. The Apostle Paul was aware of the fact that the doctrine of the resurrection from the dead was not a doctrine that was easily perceived. 
almost all people had a sense that there was a life after death. It was a part of Greco-Roman religion, and it was a part even of the thinking of some of the ancient philosophers. So there was always a hope of something after death, but that it involved the body was something that they did not see and could not understand. So the Apostle Paul begins the 15th chapter with a restatement of what the gospel is all about. Look at it very carefully. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you and when also you received and in which you stand and by which you are also saved. The Bible from the earliest chapters of Genesis to the concluding chapter of Revelation is a, Bible, is a book about salvation. Oh, it's about so many other things. Tells us how to live. Tells us uh, how to relate to people. It tells us how to love. And uh, on and on and on. But above all else, make no mistake about it, the Bible is about the doctrine of salvation. It's about the doctrine of a Savior. And even the infallibility and inerrancy of the Word of God is there only to uphold the doctrine of Jesus Christ the Savior and the salvation that he offers to all men. And so he says, you have received this and you are saved by this. Here is the gospel in verse 3. I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Look at the little preposition for in the text there. That is the preposition who pair in the Greek language. It is a substitutionary preposition. Christ died in behalf of the sinner, in behalf of sins. He was placed as the substitute. The substitutionary atonement of our Lord Jesus Christ literally dots the pages of the New Testament and has never failed to be emphasized. Now, why is it so important? Because there is no other way to be saved. You can never do enough to satisfy the glory and the grace of God. You can never make yourself appealing enough to God. And so there had to be a substitute. In the economy of eternity, there had to be one who would die for our sins. And so the preposition emphasizes the intervention of Jesus in our lives. And note, he died for our sins according to the scriptures. The scriptures were not merely a religious testimony of the experiences that godly people had. Oh, no. They represent the very word of God. He says, I'm talking to you about the death of Jesus Christ according to the scriptures. I'm not laying out to you a religious philosophy that has been hatched in the soul of someone searching for something better. I am giving it to you, a salvation for our souls that was testified by God in the Holy Scriptures. So it is by 
the means of or according to the Holy Scriptures. And furthermore, that he was buried, but he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then, just so there would be no mistake about it, so this wouldn't be done in the shadows, so that the resurrection would not be something that was in a lonely tomb. First of all, he was seen by Cephas, then by the 12 apostles, and then he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, the greater number of which are still with us. They knew he had been crucified, Many of them saw him placed in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. It doesn't matter what anybody says. They knew he was dead. Now, more than 500 of them, most are alive, Paul says. Go talk to them and ask them what they saw. They saw a risen, living Lord. Now, admittedly, he had a glorified body. But now it was a body. And, and people say, well, no, it was just an apparition. No, it was a body. He came into the upper room, and you recall that the response of the apostles was terror. They backed away from him. And so Jesus said, it is I, be not afraid. And they backed away further. And our Lord said, Give me a piece of the fish and the honeycomb. Now, they had some strange appetites back there. I never thought of fish and honeycomb as being two things you'd put together, but I suppose, and that day it must have been okay. They gave him a piece of the fish and the honeycomb, and he ate it. It didn't just fall on the floor. It was received into some sort of celestial digestive tract, uh, he had an actual body. A and then Mary Magdalene saw him and she grabbed hold of his ankles. Folks, she had hold of something, enough so that he had to say, stop clinging to me, I have not yet ascended to the Father. Oh, and the doubter Thomas was not there, but when he sees him, he says, Thomas, I want you to reach into your hands and put them in the scars of the nail prints which are still in my hand and here's my side and thrust it into my side and see that it is really I. And Thomas never had to do it. He'd seen enough. And he cried out, my Lord and my God. Oh, yes, he had a resurrected body. I'm looking forward to the resurrected body. I'm looking forward to it. I have reason to believe that in the glorified body there will be no obesity. Even so, come Lord Jesus. I am looking forward to that wonderful opportunity. I will be able to hear in my glorified body instead of having to say to everybody, what's that? I am going to be able to see again in the glorified body. 
I'm looking forward to the glorified body. Now, you can go around trying to avoid death every way you want to. I'm out trying to get trampled by a wild cape buffalo so that I can make a grand exit from here and get on up there for my glorified body. It's not something to be feared. It's not something to be taken away from. It's something to look forward to. So over 500 saw him that knew he was dead, and now he was alive, and last of all, by James and all the apostles, and finally, by me as one. And uh, here, uh, the interesting word literally means as one who miscarried, but he doesn't mean that by it. He simply means one that was born when nobody was expecting it. He, he saw the Lord after the ascension of the Lord as he appeared to him on the Damascus Road. And so he speaks of it as being born out of due time. Well, what do we say about all this? Listen, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how come some of you folks are saying that there is no resurrection from the dead? Let me line it out for you here. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then it follows that Christ is not risen. That is, the essence of the gospel is truncated, and it is no more gospel. If there is no resurrection, Christ has not been raised. Oh, but uh, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is kenos, empty. It has no content to it. Now, some of you listening to me today and saying, well, even though there is a resurrection, his preaching is empty. Well, that may be true, but this means all preaching is empty. What a waste of time. Do you realize, have you ever thought about how many hours you invest in your pastor? Why, he takes uh, three to six hours, depending on how biblical he is, uh, every week of your time, and he does it for a lifetime. What, what a terrible waste of time. If Christ is not risen, his preaching is empty. Oh, but you're in seminary, and you're preparing to preach the gospel. Many of you are already doing it. Why are you doing it? Because he has been raised from the dead. So your preaching is not empty but your faith is also empty. Any faith you've got means nothing. I don't care if you adhere to all of the law. It comes to nothing unless Jesus has been raised from the dead. Yes, and the truth of the matter is we are found to be false witnesses because we've gone around testifying everywhere of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile. Everything you've put into church, everything you've put into the Bible, everything you've put into prayer, everything you've put into any kind of religious exercise is vain and empty. It comes to nothing unless Jesus has been raised from the dead. Then also, those who have fallen asleep have perished. Who here today, and don't lift your hands because it's everybody, has not had the experience of losing somebody dear to him? You come in and 
they, everybody rises to give uh, a reference to the fact that you're the family of the deceased and there lies my father and there lies my mother and there lies my grandfather, my old preacher grandfather from Abilene, Texas and there lies my grandmother and we walk by and we grieve but not as those who had no hope because we know that there's coming today when we'll be with them again. I often wonder how do people handle it who have no hope, who come to that moment of the memorial service and they see the loved one there in the casket for the final time and they have no hope. How do they exist? I don't know. But then also, those who have fallen asleep have perished if there's no resurrection. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, then we are of all people. And here the word is uh, ileio, which is the word for mercy. Here we are of all men most miserable. You see, it's, it's not a zero-sum game. It's, it's not a situation where either there is a resurrection and or there isn't a resurrection, but if there isn't, it won't ultimately matter. No, if there is no resurrection, we, that is born-again believers, are of all men most to be pitied. We have believed the lie. We bought into the fantasy, and it turns out not to be true. Folks, I am trying to drive a hard line today to help you to see and nail down the fact that the resurrection of Jesus from the grave is not just something else. It is Christianity. You getting it? Okay. Well, let's hurry on. I got to hurry. Um, but now is Christ risen from the dead, and he's become the first fruits of those that had fallen asleep. And since by man came, uh, came death, by man will come also the resurrection, the first Adam, sinned against God, and in him we die. But in the second Adam, in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are raised again. So for since by man came death, by man comes also the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ is the first fruits, and afterwards those that are his at his coming parousia, at his presence. Our Lord is going to bodily return to this earth. Your gospel is not complete until you tell the story of his bodily resurrection and his bodily return to the earth. Now, you can divide up discussing how exactly that's going to happen as much as you want to, but in the final analysis, Every true believer in the Lord believes that the Lord is going to come. Oh, but we've preached that for so many years and hasn't anything happened. How can you still believe that the Lord is going to come again? Now, folks, I just wonder if we ever heard Jesus talk about the signs of the time. Listen, 
it's not as though he has left us in a vacuum. And when the world is wringing its hands about Washington, D.C., the North Koreans, the Chinese, the Russians, the Americans, and wringing its hands about what the future will hold, don't you ever be in that category as a believer. You have every confidence that this world is not running down the hall of history, pinging off the walls out of control, but God is guiding the whole of it to the design climax of the ages. And we're going to get to be a part of it. Oh, yeah. He's coming again. Let's, let's hurry up here. Uh, so when he uh, comes in the end, he... he uh, delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, and he puts an end all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. Now, I'm not going to harangue you today with my eschatological views, but I just want to hit one in passing by. Would you forgive me? Yes, you will. You don't have a choice. So here it goes. What's the use of his reigning in heaven Tell his enemies are put under his footstool. None. Obviously, he rules in heaven, and obviously, the enemy has been vanquished. When he reigns until his enemies are all under his footstool is a definite statement about the millennial reign of Christ. He reigns on earth until every enemy has become his footstool. Yes, okay. Well, just wanted you to be sure you got that out of the scriptures. For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things were put under him, uh, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted, that is, God the Father. Now when all things are made subject to him, and then the Son himself will also be subject unto him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Now, this is not a subordination of essence. Jesus is God as fully as the Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God as surely as the Father, and Jesus is God. But there is a subordination of action in the Bible. And when Christ has reigned over this earth until all are put under him, and the kingdom is established, then he will turn the kingdom over to the Father, he says, and he himself will be subject to the Father because he is the Son. Not in essence, he is God, fully God, but in action, all right? Now comes the most difficult verse in the chapter. Are you watching this? Otherwise, what shall they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? Out in Utah, hidden in a mountain, there are hundreds of files that contain the information about your ancestors. You want to know, but you probably don't, who you came from. You go there and you study that find out and because they want to be sure that everybody is taken care of based on this verse they have developed baptism for the dead and so a good Mormon wanting to con be concerned about 
his uh, uh, grandparents and other siblings and that kind of thing, he will be baptized maybe many times in behalf of the dead. Is that what this passage refers to? No. What it actually refers to is as simple as falling off a log. All you have to do is remember where it occurs. It occurs in the greatest chapter on the resurrection. It has to do with bringing back to life that which has died. And so he says, otherwise, what will they do who are baptized? Oh my goodness, there's that preposition again, who pair baptized on behalf of the dead if the dead do not rise at all. Did you ever think about this? Baptism is a pretty unusual ceremony. Now, I made one mistake uh, when we built this auditorium. I put the baptistry out front, but it wasn't really a mistake. I wanted everybody to see it coming in so they'd know what we are. And so there's a baptistry out front, and it's an unusual thing that Christians take a new convert and duck him. Think about it. It's an unusual turn of events. We push him under the water and he comes up like a wet rat and uh, we rejoice in that baptism. What in the world are we doing? He is talking about why are we baptized concerning or with reference to death. When you are baptized, you proclaim the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, his burial in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and his resurrection on the third day. And not only that, but when you are baptized, you proclaim, oh yes, I have died to my old way of life. And today the old man is being placed beneath the waters of the watery grave. And I have risen to walk in a newness of life. And oh, yes, and by the way, don't forget that someday there are going to be six guys that carry me out and they're going to put me in the ground and cover me up and I bet you think that's going to be in. But no, when the trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ shall rise first. So what shall they do? What is the purpose of being baptized except to proclaim his death, burial, and resurrection? That's exactly what the verse is all about. It's about baptism for the dead, as though you were dead. And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. And then he goes on and discusses that, and I'm out of time. If I do the rest of the chapter, we'll get out of here about 3 o'clock. So I want. I thank you, I know, but... Unfortunately, my wife's sitting down here, and I can't. <laughs> Verse 50. Now I say, brethren, flesh and blood, as we know it here, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. 
have you noticed you're dying you're 23 you start dying some of you have been dying for a long time I've been dying a lot longer than most of you have not bad it's okay but it is corruption but I tell you a musterion now in the Bible a musterion a mystery is not a whodunit a mystery is something that you never in this world would have figured out on your own investigation God had to give it to you that's what a mystery is I'm gonna tell you a mystery we shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed in a moment the twinkling of an eye not the blinking of an eye that'd be way too slow in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump the trumpet will sound the dead will be raised incorruptible never again to suffer sadness and sorrow and illness and and death and we shall be changed for this corruptible must put on uh, incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality so when this corruption is put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory and then he quotes Isaiah 25 8 oh death where is your sting Hades where is your victory the sting of, of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ therefore my beloved brethren be steadfast immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord Luis Pantoja was my professor of theology at the Crossville College he was in the Philippines and came to Dallas Theological Seminary and came over and asked me for a job as an intern and I liked the guy he had a great sense of humor he had an unbelievable grasp of uh, American idiom and you don't see that too often and uh, he was just a delight to be around so I hired him as an intern he eventually got his PhD at Dallas Seminary and and uh, I hired him on the faculty at uh, Crystal College and then he came to me one day and said uh, I, I need to go back to my country the largest Baptist Church there in the Philippines in Manila has called me to be the pastor and I must go and I said I agree with you hundred percent you must go lost a great theologian that day but gave him a great pastor and Luis has since uh, died of a coronary arrest and gone on to heaven to be with the Lord but while he was still with me another thing happened that I can never forget his oldest son was diagnosed with cancer everything in the world was done to try to save his life nothing worked he declined declined not yet 20 breathed his last slipped out into eternity when we knew that that was inevitable 
I was talking to Luis one day, and I said, is there anything we can do? And he said, well, I don't know. He said, he said, my son keeps saying that he wants to see the holy light before he dies. But he said, I just can't see any way how he could do it. He's so weak now. His weight has increased so much, it would be impossible to carry him around. And I just don't know how we could do it. As you know, uh, Mama is uh, famous for this. If there's something that can't be done, you mention it to her. And if you want it really done, you say, and Ms. Patterson, not even you could make this happen. They are golden words. I promise you, it's unbelievable what happens. She heard. She said, we're going to take that boy. My son heard about it. This boy was my son's best friend. He was the same age. He said, I am personally going to carry him throughout the Holy Land. So Ms. Patterson made all the arrangements necessary, including special care and along the way, and, and we went. I watched day after day after day my boy hoist kid who weighed nearly twice what he did onto his back for 12 hours a day. He carried that boy to see every sight in the Holy Land. So when he died, we had the funeral and went to the graveside. I had to wonder how my boy would do. Sure enough, when everybody was gone, he collapsed in front of the casket, wept bitterly. And I thought to myself, what do I say? What do I do? After Hummer had wept for 10 minutes, he got up tears from his eyes said well let's go I said okay we'll go I said are you through here he said yes he said I'll wait to see him again on the other side and I do that all we had taught had taken deep root he believed in the resurrection from the dead. Sweet friend, never, ever.